You won't, you won't prep at all for this? Uh, no. Hello and welcome to Amplifier. I'm your host, Blake J. Graham. Today's guest is a man on the path to lawyerhood. He's a very clever fellow I'm fortunate enough to call my friend, and he's the co-host of the insanely popular comedy podcast, If I May, with Colin Blake. We're going to talk about the nuance of law. We're going to debunk some law and order, and we're even going to talk about an exploding chicken at one point. I don't want to waste one moment. Ladies and gentlemen, Cole Wagaman. You know, I, I don't know where you, where you see this this podcast conversation going exactly, because I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like I should be talked to as if I'm some kind of legal expert. I'm just a second year law student, you know? Let, let's just get that out there. You're, you're definitely not a smart person. No. You're, you're not no. a professional. <laughs> you're, no. an, you're an expert in, in, in literally nothing that I can think of. Can you think of anything? Uh, sometimes when the professor calls on me, I can make a face that looks like I'm really thinking about the answer, even though I'm not. And then how long do you just make that face for before he moves on? Like for two, until he answers his own question. So that could be, (laughs) that could be, you know, 10 seconds or 30, 40, 50 seconds. It just depends. Right. Okay. No, just to, just to establish for our, our dear listeners, you are, like you said, a second year law student at a reputable law school. Yeah. What's what's it called? The University of Virginia. University of Virginia. Okay. Located in the center of Virginia, Charlottesville, Virginia. Architecturally designed by Thomas Jefferson. The the university is their law school isn't. It's uh it's a newer building. What, what do you mean? How how much newer is? Did Thomas Jefferson ha- have any hand in the creation of it? Um. Well, he created the law school back on main grounds, which is what they call campus here grounds. Back on main grounds, and it was there until like the seventies, I think, and then or maybe the yeah, and then they built a new building, which is more away from the undergrads, um, to keep them separate, separate, not equal, just separate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, separate, separate, but not equal. I mean, I think we're better than that. No, I'm just kidding. I I think it. I I like it because uh, you know undergrads kind of go about schooling in a in a slightly different way, I think, than law students, and, and as it as it should be. Um, and so it's kind of nice to not have the distractions down there. Oh, and you get distracted by undergrads very easily. I mean, well, one walks by. <laughs> I mean, I'm more, it's more of like a dog-mailman relationship. Who's who? I'm the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Okay, so yeah, you're at this prestigious law school. You call things grounds instead of campus because you guys were founded in like the 1300s or something like that when words hadn't yeah, give fully or take come a into Yeah, centuries, yeah when words hadn't fully come into form and you're a second year law student. And so, yes, you are no legal expert, but uh, you are someone who is going through law school and law school and lawyerhood. And the Mm -hmm. law is very much so an institution in this country. I mean, there's like at least six or seven TV shows about lawyers. And that's where I get most of my knowledge about what a lawyer does on a regular day. It's mostly just like solving cases last minute and having sex with other lawyers. Is that representative of, of what's going on? Or do you not know yet because you're not officially a lawyer? Because there's not many movies about people in law school. Well, I think... Um, Except for Legally Blonde. What? Well, that, that's... Yeah, why don't you give me an example of something you've seen in an, ep, in an episode of any of these shows you watch, and I'll tell you if it's representative. Okay, so usually um, Fade from Black, and we see someone running... And they're through like a dark alleyway. It's grimy. Maybe it's Miami. Maybe it's New York. But it's, it's after dark. Someone's coming out of a club. They seem like they're being chased by someone. They keep looking behind them. Glance behind. Glance behind. They're being chased. They're chased. Cut away. And they're dead in a puddle. Immediately, the cops come in. 
like it's like next day and they say call the lawyer then the lawyers come in and then they figure out what happened so in some cases i think what what show is it because i'm trying to figure out why the cops would call a lawyer do you mean the prosecutor or the detectives or it's unclear it's unclear (laughs) okay well i think that is very representative because there are a lot of things in law school that are very unclear so maybe that's you know it's really just a big uh game and the professor hides the ball behind his back and you got to try and figure out it you know if it's a ball or not you got to figure out, uh, yeah, if it's a ball or if it's really something else like a uh, watermelon. And how often is it a watermelon? Is it nearly always a watermelon? I've never found it. I don't know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so that Still. game always goes poorly. <laughs> I just hear from other people who have found the ball. Yeah, but I mean, so in these you know shows, lawyers are like essentially like superheroes who are kind of half detectives. Maybe I'm thinking of detective shows. Uh, maybe I don't know anything about a lawyer. Um, but yeah, they're kind of like these magical people who like fight for justice or truth and things like that. Do you do you feel that that's what you do on a day to day basis in your class, or that's what you're gearing up for? Um, no, I think fighting for justice is probably easier seen in the criminal law context. So like the courtroom with the prosecutor and the you know one of my professors pointed out the other day that you ever noticed that Matlock never had a guilty client? No, I, I've never seen that show. But let's assume that I have, and he didn't have any guilty clients. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's pretty unrealistic. Uh, there's always, you know, every lawyer, whether he knows it or not, has guilty clients. Right, so, so even in that situation, like, there's a conflict between, like, a lawyer trying to win a case and the actual truth of what's going on. So Matlock, as, is that a person? So last, last semester I took uh, evidence, which is, you know, really important if you're going to be in the courtroom at all, because that's evidence is what can be admitted to the, in the court, what the jury can see and what they can't see. We're talking about and the I, exhibit A's, the exhibit B's, yeah. the exhibit C's, the exhibit right. D's, the exhibit uh-huh. E's. Yeah. Um, and also the, just the people who can testify, really. So people are evidence? Yeah. People's statements is evidence, are evidence. Okay. My professor said not to watch, you know, Law and Order because that's you're never going to learn evidence that way. It's just going to confuse you. So it's it's so far off. So what what is what, what's like the difference? Because I, I you do have to have like reasonable justification and proof of something to admit something as evidence. That's you can't just throw anything as evidence. Is that the concept? Well, it has to be um, probative and it has to be material. Okay, so, so probative. Probative. I, what- I guess the. The, the best way that I have heard, had it described to me is uh, not only does it have to get you, so the two things are probative and material, and it has to get you closer to the target, and it has to be the right target. So probative means that it has value of uh, showing that the fact that you're trying to prove is more likely with this piece of evidence. So for instance, if I'm trying to convict you for drunk driving, which this is not really realistic because they would have breathalyzers or whatever, but let's just say um, we know that you're an alcoholic or we have evidence that you're an alcoholic. This is getting hurtful, but okay. <laughs> That's probative. It's, it's gonna, the, the odds of you driving drunk if you're an alcoholic are a lot better than if you're not an alcoholic. Right. Um, so, so, that's so, so to then introduce into the case, you know, Blake has a history of alcoholism would be probative and meet that sort of criteria because it is pertinent to the case and makes it, I guess, the conviction or whatever more realistic, the, the claim you're trying to make more substantial? I wouldn't say realistic. That doesn't, I guess, I think... Probabilistic? Probable, yeah. It's more probable than 
it's more probable than it would be without the evidence. It doesn't have to be like more probable as in like now it's 51% likely. The evidence can move you from 1% likely to 2% likely. It's just got to be more likely than, than it was without the evidence. Okay. That's um, probative. Right. And then the second one is material, which would mean that not only are we getting closer to the target, we're aiming at the right target. So, for instance, if we said we're trying to convict Blake of drunk driving and um, someone testifies that um, Blake is a womanizer. Again, that, hurtful. <laughs> that's prob- pro- probative in this uh probative in the sense that it's getting us closer to something it's getting us closer to the fact that maybe you are abusive towards women or something but it's not getting it but it's getting us closer to the wrong target so it's not material right it's not so it's that not would not that wouldn't be allowed hand. yeah right so, so that wouldn't so be admissible as evidence is that the point where my lawyer would then say objection your lawyer should have seen all the evidence that the other side plans to present before it ever gets to court so you, you should be able to, your lawyer should have said, hey, judge, the other side wants to introduce this, and I don't want it. So you throw um, it out beforehand. So does that, hopefully, does, yeah. does that mean, like, so often, again, going back to my knowledge from TV shows, there's, like, surprise witnesses or yeah, surprise that, that, evidence? That, that doesn't happen. That That's doesn't not, happen. It's not no, like, no. oh, wait, this gardener who's, like, the no. key to the whole thing is suddenly on the stand? No, because you would easily just uh, say, hey, judge, we haven't had a chance. We weren't made aware of this witness as the rules uh, dictate that we have to be and also you know we haven't had a chance to take this person's deposition um you know because one thing maybe I, maybe it's a misconception as a quick side note any after you've been in law school for a couple of years you kind of start to forget what it's like to not think in terms of l- legal things i guess to think as a layman which is like the most elitist term we have for people who aren't lawyers yeah that's that's pretty douchey but i'll, I'll oh, it's with horrible. it. <laughs> I, that's horrible. Oh, but, it's all the uh, stupid normals like me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't have half a law degree. I'm dumb. Okay, go ahead. I don't even have half one yet. Oh, yeah, I do. I'm almost at two thirds. I do have half. Math isn't my strong point. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> you never call someone to the stand who you don't know what they're going to say already. You've already taken their deposition and you or their statement. You know exactly what they're going to testify to. You've probably prepped the witness a little. You know now's a Here's, a, here's the kind of thing that the other lawyers are going to ask you. Here's the kind of way you want to answer. Or we're trying to look, you know, confident or we're trying to look sad or whatever it be. Just the whole idea of witnesses saying stuff unexpected isn't, isn't really, really realistic. Co- it's, it's re- it's, it happens, obviously. Witnesses uh, can say dumb things or the wrong thing or get confused. You know, lots of times the other lawyer could confuse them. But it's not common to, like, call someone and then... They're just bringing up some surprising piece of evidence that you haven't talked to them about. And, and in, the instance, in the instance that that happens, like if so, you kind of mentioned this, and maybe we should clear up for all the other laymen out there, the dummies like me. Uh, when you talk about taking deposition when you're deposed, that's like, that is like a pre line of questioning where you already gathered all the information so you know what their like statement is, right? That's how that works. So before yeah, you're actually so- on the stand, you sit them down, record the session, ask questions. That's what being deposed is, right? Right. And being deposed. So I'm in a class right now called How to Take an Effective Deposition. So I know a little bit about depositions now. They've got great names in law school. Yeah, they do. You know exactly um, what you're getting into. <laughs> right. In a deposition, you can ask almost anything to the person because the rules of evidence aren't in play because the rules of evidence only matter to, uh, in a sense, the jury. 
you know, because you don't want the jury to see things that could prejudice them. Right. So in a deposition, the jury's not there and they're not going to get to read this deposition unless some rare instance happens like this person dies or something. And then maybe we would get it admitted. But in general, they will not get to see the deposition. So uh, you can ask just about anything. The only thing you can't ask is things that are protected with privilege, which is a part of evidence where like, you know, lawyer client privilege or uh, marital privilege. You can't you can never find out what a husband and wife said to each other and, and just to each other if no one else heard it. That's always always protected with privilege. Is that only in the case of like a legal marriage? That would probably yeah. Yeah, it would have to be a legal marriage. Okay. Interesting. So but so you can ask anything. You kind of have this gathering of information. And then say you put a witness on the stand and they say something that is like completely opposite of what they said when they were deposed. What what then? If so if they say something that you weren't expecting, is that what you said? Or something that's contradictory to what they said when they were deposed. Because normally that's where you'd so, like gather. So what you, what you would do is say, um, did you take a deposition in this case for this case? And they'd say yes. And you said, Do you remember that you what you know, testifying or being deposed or giving a statement? And they would say yes. And then you would you could read the statement to them or you could say, Okay, I the statement said this. Um, do you agree with that, or are you? So when you're when you're, uh, it's called cross examining. Is when you do the opposite sides of witness. So if the other side brings witnesses, when I get to talk to them, I'm cross examining them as opposed to direct examination, which is your own witness. So that so again, this is the part in the in the shows where you know I call someone to the stand and then I ask them questions and then you get to go up and you ask yeah, some questions. Yeah, you're now yeah. cross examining. Right. So I'm cross-examining. So on a cross-examine, what you, that's what you want to do is you want them to get to, you want them to say the wrong thing because that's called impeaching the witness. And so they've been impeached. Now, impeaching doesn't mean like, oh, they're wrong and they get kicked out of court or anything. All impeaching means is that the jury sees that they're lying or wrong. And so the jury no longer gives them credit in their own minds. But it's not like an impeached witness no longer can testify or their statement doesn't matter. Um, but if I could get the witness to say, um, oh, I didn't see a gun there. And I say, okay, do you remember giving a deposition? And they say, yeah. And I said, in the deposition, did you testify that, they, that you saw a gun there? And they would either have to say yes, or if they said no, it would be perjury. Mm-hmm. Is that the same thing as, is that no. hand in hand with impeaching the witness? No. So perjury imp- is lying under oath, right? Yes. Yeah. That in perjury, you can get in big trouble with the law. So the judge could find out and then you'd have, could have a whole separate trial about did you commit perjury perjure yourself and if the answer is yes you could you know i don't know the, exactly what the statute says but i assume you could go to prison or, or at least pay a huge fine there's I some repercussions to that yeah it's probably prison time i but, would assume but that's different from just impeaching the witness which is yeah impeaching the witness is just a term to say like you caught them lying and, or wrong maybe not lying but at least wrong and the the jury is going to give them less credit in their own mind. So it, has, it doesn't have to do with necessarily like, did they lie? Did they do something wrong or malicious? It's just that we are now discrediting them as a viable addition of yep. people are evidence. Their statements are no longer as substantial. Right. right. And then the jury, you know, is smart enough to realize, um, okay, if this person lied. So the, the famous thing you're supposed to say on a cross-examination when you catch someone, when you impeach the witnesses, you say, Aha. were you... Were you lying then or were you lying now? Oh, wow. That's, that, that's an intimidating thing to Right. And it never looks, yeah, and it never looks good. And the jury sees that and says, okay, well, we obviously have somebody who's not telling the truth. So we shouldn't trust what they're saying. So part of that then becomes like the theater of like very clearly laying out to the jury 
what's what's happening. Like you're not you don't want them just to assume like they're caught in a lie by directly saying that you're like triggering like, okay, like if they've been dozing off, the jury's been dozing off. This is now the lying moment to pay attention to. Would you say that's fair? I don't understand the question. You're not just trying to subtly like be like, oh, yes, they're lying. If you're trying to impeach a witness, you want to make it very clear so that the jury takes note. So there's yeah, some, wanna... some amount of like theater to it, not to say it's theatrical, but like of very clearly conveying that to everyone in the room. Yeah, you want to make it clear, but at the same time, you're not uh, allowed to like be argumentative or badger the witness. And so oftentimes you would ask, you, you say you put the lying part in the question. Were you lying then or were you lying now? So that's a that's a question as opposed to you're lying. You wouldn't you know that that's not as common or at least I, I, I you know, I don't know exactly. I'm starting to get into um, a range that I'm not as confident. I don't know as much about, but um, so I don't I don't know if you'd often say that. But I do know that lots of times you would just bring it up and the jury can figure it out on their own that they're lying because you you would say in the question, are you lying then or now? And then on your closing argument, that would be when you're just speaking to the jury and the witnesses are gone. Then you can argue and you can say, this is what they said the first time. This is what they just testified to now. Clearly, that's a lie. So you get a, you get a little bit more explicitly lay everything out. There yeah. Then. So if you don't, you know, you may not want to say you're a big fat liar right there in court. But, you know, during the during the cross-examination, I mean. But you would you would do that probably during the closing argument in a more professional way. Say, okay, this person is clearly not telling the truth. All right. Now, what's what's leading the witness? This is this is one I hear a lot in those old TV shows. Leading the witness is when the question suggests the answer. Um, so, lots of times, a common mistake that's leading is when you say uh, you were go- you were out of town this weekend, right? Or you wouldn't say this weekend, I guess. You were out of the town of the weekend in question, right? If you're ending with right, that's leading. Um, you could even say saying you were out of town that weekend, right, is leading. As opposed um, to being like, where were you that weekend? Yes, exactly. But I think that there's a big ca- caveat here that you, you need to realize, which is that when when you're asking your own witnesses, which you might remember is called direct examination, direct examination, that <laughs> you, 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 you're not allowed to lead then. But when you're asking, when you're cross-examining a witness, you are allowed to lead. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. So when you're asking your own witness, you just want them to tell their story and you want the jury to be able to hear it. But when you're asking the other witness, you don't want, you're not there for them to tell their story. You're there to impeach them and show why they're wrong. And so you would say, you were in town that weekend, right? And then they would have to say yes. And they might try and give a long roundabout answer. And then you'd say, I'm sorry, I'm just asking, were you there that weekend? And if they keep going about it, you can say, judge, um, Please direct the witness to answer my questions. And then what does the judge do? Do they bang the gavel at that point? They throw the gavel at the witness's face and try and break his nose. Oh, it's, wow. Uh, That's common, see, common, common practice. That, this is the juicy stuff. This is the stuff you don't see in the TV show. Yeah, I should. You know, I, uh, I, I have a fear that there's going to be some other law students listening to this. And I just want to let them know, because maybe they know more about these things than me, that I am in a trial advocacy class right now. So a lot of this isn't just I'm not just. For your own knowledge too, Blake, I'm not just speaking from the rules of evidence. These are these are things I've learned in trial class. Well, yeah, that's that's what we that's what we want. This is this is no, the yeah. scoop. I just didn't I didn't want uh, you to be under the impression that the rules of evidence just have all the answers to all these questions you've asked. And so, so would you say that often in law school you find that the answers are not where you want them to be? I feel like the the question you had a good laugh at your own question there, didn't you? I did. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I'm still looking for the answers, I suppose. 
All right, so you're we, we've got some good groundwork. I think next time I, I watch Law and Order. Or next time, are we done already? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's I've I've gotten all all I needed. Would you say that like there are certain things that were like either particularly like surprising? You know, as you kind of mentioned, you now have this separation between you, the elite law student, and then the rest of the dummies of the world. Um, would you say that there are things like in the first, you know, your first two years of law school, you're just like, I had no idea how this works or it completely kind of changes your perspective on like what being a lawyer is. Cause it sounds a lot more boring except for that gavel toss thing than, yeah. than, you know, the TV shows make it out to be. So it seems like a very glamorous thing, but it seems like it might actually be a lot more tedious. And a lot of the work is actually done, not necessarily even in the courtroom, but in the research and the prep work yeah. that goes before that actually. I mean, yeah, I think that, I guess you, you kind of had a lot of, questions there i think yeah there's a it's not glamorous i don't think i mean obviously i haven't practiced law but from what i've learned i don't think there's a lot of just screaming in the courtroom as much as like doing the groundwork like you said and knowing the witness knowing the case inside and out and uh what what the witnesses are going to testify to and where the weak points in each person each side's case is and all, all that stuff i guess the biggest thing that i was surprised about is there's uh, a lot. So this was kind of getting to the point where I said earlier, I there's a, I don't even remember what it's like to not think about legal things. So I don't remember how I used to think. I think I didn't think about it at all. I didn't. I didn't even understand the difference between a plaintiff and a defendant. I knew. I knew nothing. Okay. Uh, and and for our listeners, the plaintiff and the defendant are the plaintiff is the person bringing the suit, and the defendant is the person you're suing. That makes sense. And so in a in a criminal case, the plaintiff is always the government because the the state brings cases on behalf of the injured party or like the the victim i guess right um and then in a criminal case you know the penalties are typically prison and then in a civil case the penalties are you know typically uh monetary right and so when when you hear like the name of the case like it's like georgia versus tommy that that then spell is that the right ordering then that spells out who's the plaintiff and who's the defendant in that case yeah so the the plaintiff always is the first, you know, Georgia, which means it's probably a criminal case because the state of Georgia is bringing something against the defendant. What was the name you you used? Tommy. Tommy. Uh, It would be the person's last name. So if their last name is Tommy. That's correct. Uh, That's exactly right. (laughs) But uh, the Supreme Court, once it gets up there to that level, the name of the party who's moving for an appeal is the name that goes first. So if the trial court I, okay, so this actually, I think, this, I is, think this maybe, is a good thing to get into because I did not understand the different levels of courts. The hierarchy, yeah, how you get all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, that's, that's something so, I was going to ask. So there's two sets of courts in the country. There is state courts and there's federal government courts, federal courts. I'm with you. Either one can technically end up in front of the Supreme Court, but for a state court to go to the Supreme Court, it would have to be on a question in the Constitution. So we, so you'd, you would allege that the state is depriving you of a constitutional right, a federal constitution, because keep in mind that every state has their own constitution. Correct. Uh, So you're saying uh, the state is depriving me of a federal right that I have somehow. Like, let's just say it's due process because everyone is, I'm not going to explain what it is right now, but we we can get to that in a minute if you want. Um, If you're saying you're getting deprived of due process, you would appeal it. So say that the trial court finds something, a state trial court finds something. He finds you guilty. You're right. saying so, I, I got I got due process was no I was not given that right. So then it goes to the state appeals court, 
and then it would go to the state Supreme Court. And all this time, those state courts are ruling on this federal issue. They're allowed to rule on federal issues. But if you still are not satisfied, then you could appeal to the, su- the Supreme Court of the United States, the federal court, and then they could, they could rule on that if they decided to take the case. And now, that's only after you've gone through the process of not only doing your first appeal, but then also then appealing to the state Supreme Court, right? Does it have to go through those two uh, steps you know, th- th- first? That's a good question. I, I don't know for sure, but I can answer that in real life. They always go through those steps. Okay. I don't know if you could appeal right to the Supreme Court from a trial court. That might happen. I have no idea, but it would. I feel like you would want to go to the appeals court, then you'd want to go to the state Supreme Court because that's just more opportunity for them to find for you. Right. Right. Exactly. So right. You, you have nothing to lose if they've already found against you. The worst thing that happens is the appeals court finds against you again, and then the state supreme court finds against you again. So, and the, and then just conceptually too for our listeners, the idea is: so you were, I was convicted of something mm-hmm. in a court. Right. I was charged. I was found guilty. I said, I'm not guilty. Lawyers, let's still go it. So I start to serve out my sentence. Correct. And then I am able to at that point appeal, which is essentially say there was something that was missed or I'm, is there a certain qualification that you need to have to appeal or is it just the process of saying, I want to raise this again because you, I'm still well, you have not to, guilty. You have to say that the court, the trial court, which is where you always start is in a trial court, right? Yep. You have to say that they made a mistake somehow. You have to say the judge or the jury made a serious mistake, whether it be, they didn't allow my aunt to testify about where I was that night, even though she knew, or it might be that, you know, it could be it could be a lot of things. And does does that criteria change per state? I'd imagine maybe like there's different qualifications to appeal per state because uh, each one has its own rules. Is that is that part of it, or is it a pretty universal? This is kind of what you can do to appeal, and then kind of move from there. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I I don't know exactly. I think I would assume that each state has their own rules, but they would. I think at most it would kind of just be a language difference. I think you would. In general, you're appealing about the same sort of things. You know, it's not like in one state you would appeal because your aunt wasn't allowed to testify, and in another state you wouldn't be able to appeal that. Like you could, you could appeal that. Right. Okay. So, like we said, so we start on a trial court. I say I'm still not guilty. I moved it up to the appeals court. I still say they did something wrong. I'm now going up to the state supreme court. Uh-huh. Based on their constitution, they say you're still guilty. And no, I no, say, no, 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 no. Based on the federal constitution. So, oh, so the state supreme. You might remember in this hypothetical, yeah, we were using the federal constitution. Now, all this could be true under the state constitution, but then it would never get to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, because they don't rule on state constitutions. So, if you were saying that an issue is with the state constitution, then you would get to the state Supreme Court, like you just said, but then it would be over. Their ruling would be there's there's no further place to go. No, no. But if you were arguing something with the federal constitution, then it would go through those same levels. But then, yes, you could go to the, the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. And at that point, they then see it. And I think this is so just conceptually, you know, if we talk about, you know, our branches of government, this is a place where when the Supreme Court rules on something, essentially what they find based on the case that has huge implications nationally. Right. Yeah, because the Supreme Court is rarely, you know, they, they get to decide what they take, what cases they take. And they get thousands and thousands of cases every year and they choose, and I don't know the exact number, I think it's like 80. They choose like 80 a year or something. So there's a ton of cases that don't that someone appealed to try to get to them and they just said no thanks, which means that the lower court's ruling is going to stand. Uh, they're not going to take a case probably that doesn't really set precedent 
because the I guess I guess no. Let me rephrase. Everything they choose, they decide is going to set a precedent. But they're not going to take something that's obvious. That they're going to take something that there's been an issue by whether you know each each um, appeals court, which we can get into detail what that means in a minute if you want. But each different district has decided something different. Um, so like there's a it's called a circuit split. So if a if if part of the country's appeals courts has decided that on this issue the aunt is allowed to testify, and on part of the the country's appeals courts the that have decided that this that the aunt is not allowed to testify, sticking with our hypothetical, yep. then um then the Supreme Court would be like, okay, we should take this case because there's some confusion as to how this this constitutional provision is supposed to be read. And we want to essentially settle that. Yeah. To then create the precedent and then in this in the context of law Precedent is essentially uh, the occurrence of something happening in a certain way, which then further backs the ability to do it that same way in the future. Is that fair? That's kind of a roundabout way of saying uh, it. Yeah, that was kind of a general way. I guess you would just say the court has found precedent is, you know, where the court has decided that this is the way this law should be read or it should this is the way this term should be interpreted. And so then the next time this case comes up, the judges look back to the last decided case and say, oh, three years ago, our appeals court or us or the Supreme Court or whoever said this is the way that this decision is is ruled on. And so we're going to follow that precedent. And that's the concept of like case law, right? Is is that right? Um, yeah. Like the, it's, the idea that when you're in a courtroom and this kind of like we talked about how you do the groundwork is you find similar cases where the context and the situations were the same. And then you use the precedents established by those cases to then further your own argument. Yes. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I I think a stare decisis. I think that's what it what it is. I think that's what it's called. Right. But that's a pretty fundamental concept of how mm -hmm. the court system works, right? Yeah. So if, if I could go, if I could speak at length here for real quick. Go for um, it. I think to clear a couple of things up from what we just, the hypothetical we just went through is, well, first of all, don't forget that we went through the state court system and you could always, there's another system with the federal court system that we are probably about to talk about, right? There's the federal court system, the state court system. And then what I was going to say was one thing that I didn't understand before getting to law school, I do remember this, and it's a big maybe misconception is, and I kind of was hinting at it earlier, is like there's, there's trial courts, there's a state trial court and a federal trial court. And that is the only place where trials happen is on that level. So in Indiana, where I'm from, there's uh I guess each you know each county would have their own state court, their their branch of the state. But then each federal court, there's federal court in Fort Wayne and South Bend and East Chicago, uh, Hammond is what it's called, and then you know Indianapolis and so there's there's these nexuses in these me more metropolitan areas yeah. where then that is then on the federal level those courts exist. Yeah, those are trial courts. So you're always gonna anytime you bring a lawsuit, you're gonna start. If you're in federal court, you're going to start there at the trial court level. And then, like we talked about, then you'd go to uh, the appeals court. And if the appeals decide, courts decide that the trial court messed up, they send it back to the trial court. They don't, they don't hold the trial themselves. So it's, it's just more of a process. And in, in, what is that, the, the appellate system? I, I don't mm -hmm. know what you call it. Mm -hmm. But at that point, they just say, okay, yeah, there's right. There is something that went awry here. Let's send it back right. so they would to the trial court so in our for very, it to be reexamined. In our simplified example, they would send it back to trial court and say, okay, the aunt is allowed to testify. You messed this up, trial court. Let her testify and do the whole trial over again. And you bring in new jurors and everything. You know, you can't use old jurors. You, you have already made a decision. You get new jurors and you 
do the whole trial over again, and this time you let the aunt testify, and then you see how the jury comes out on it. Right. Okay. Um, so, so that I just wanted to make that clear because I didn't understand that for law school. I thought that you just had trial. I thought there were probably trials before the Supreme Court, which there isn't. So you, yeah. So the Supreme Court is just then reading, the, like essentially the records of the the trial courts and the appellate courts beforehand, and then interpreting that. They're not actually seeing a trial. No. Well, there, there that- there's an oral argument. Okay. Where, where you'd bring in a lawyer from each side, and they would argue as to why the aunt's testimony should or shouldn't be admitted. Um, but they don't do the whole trial over again. Like there's no jury and they don't bring in witnesses and they don't do any of that. So it's just tied then to the specific element that is yes, being appealed. Exactly. Yes. So you, you take the whole trial and you say, okay, the reason we're appealing is X. Let's focus on X and then see if X is a valid reason to then actually redo the trial. If yes. it is, then it gets sent back down. If it's not, right. then you just, that's that's where it ends unless there's a higher court to appeal to. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. And, I did not know that. Yeah, we should also clarify that the Supreme Court. It's not like they only decide. Like we're just using one really small subset that they can make decisions on. Like there's other things that they could they could be deciding. You know what uh, a word in a statute means, or um, you know, or like you know, like the recent big cases uh, whether the constitution grants the right for gay people to marry. Right. Um, and that, so that's a lot different than the example I just gave you, but it's the same idea, I guess. Right. And in that case, it kind of, this is kind of where like, as I understand it, and from like what I've studied and, you know, in certain like philosophy and philosophy of law classes that I've had before, it kind of then breaks down to like the interpretation of like language at that point. Like, yeah. can this, can this specific word like down to like a very singular word be read to mean yeah. this sort of thing or that other thing. Yeah, it gets pretty in the weeds and pretty, I don't know, at that point, because you have to remember that if the conservative justices had won that case, what that would mean isn't that gay people can't get married. It would just mean that the states get to decide. Right. So the states always, all along, have had the power to decide whether gay people are allowed to get married. Right. Which is why That's, in Massachusetts they could for a long time, and uh, a couple other states. But so, but someone brought a challenge saying, "You've deprived me, excuse me, of my constitutional right to marry a man or a man. A man is a you." And so then we went through that system which you and I talked about, which we went through a trial court, an appeals court. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if it was originated in state court or federal court. Doesn't really matter. And then it got to federal court. And they said, you know, the Constitution does grant you this right, even though the Constitution doesn't say anything about that. I don't think it even says anything about marriage. Well, it doesn't. I know it doesn't. At that point, you know, it's it's tough. The the Constitution has the justices at this point have said, you know, it says a lot more than what it physically says by promising you other things, I guess. It's hard to explain. You know, the con con laws is a hard subject for anybody. Right, but essentially you get to the point where in the reading of the Constitution, it's like, by promising you X thing, and by the precedent that yeah. X thing has established over time, this Y thing is encompassed under X thing. Yes, exactly. And so exactly. therefore, if it promises X, and Y is a subset of X then, you are also promised Y. Right, so like equal protection saying, um, they're saying, well, gay people deserve to be treated equally as straight people, and so... If that's the case, and the Constitution says that, which it doesn't obviously use the word gay or straight, but um, there are constitutional protections, equal protection, and some court way back when decided that 
who who gets those protections and this is getting beyond my level of knowledge um but uh so then you get to the present day and they say okay well gay people are counted and they need the equal protection and so then they get they can, they're allowed to marry and and so now they're saying that's part of the constitution and no state can make a law otherwise so no state can say that they can't marry now and this is this is kind of the point i was trying to make that when precedent and like you said i guess any case they hear will set a precedent on some level it then has national implications right. across the board because essentially if like um and again correct me if i'm wrong in this but the understanding is so you have the constitutional which envelop like constitutional rights which envelop all the united states and then pretty much everything after that i don't know if it's like this is part of the bill of rights like the ninth or tenth one whatever one it's like everything else is up to the states at that point but more, the states less, can't yeah. be in violation of that federal overarching thing so if it's set on the federal level then the states cannot make a rule against that um yeah so is that's that, is that the layman interpretation of it yeah that's um <laughs> called it's where the you know the the state can't enact anything that's against the federal the federal constitution um and they can't enact and also they can't enact things that are against federal law so federal law always trumps state law that's called preemption just the idea too that you know especially when these issues are being Red, and like you said, they're only dealing with the component that's being appealed. Mm -hmm. right. It does get much more into like the interpretation and precedent of previous cases that have been set to do it. And oftentimes it is, you know, you're reading, you're interpreting the Constitution, which isn't directly talking about one thing to determine another. You know, having read, uh, taking con law last year and re read a lot of Supreme Court opinions. That's constitutional law? Constitutional, yeah. Law. yeah sorry. Um, one thing that I didn't realize before law school and th this is more of my opinion this isn't so please don't take this to the bank uh, a lot of people I who never are, do who are smarter than me who would argue this but i think you know i was kind of surprised at how many of the liberal justices and the and voted always in the way that would help democrats and the conservative justices always voted in a way that would help the the republicans if that makes sense you know and they all have their own constitutional reasoning and logic as to why that they've made these decisions and you know it's oft it's oftentimes really good logic on both sides um but they just are using different systems but i guess or different belief systems on how the constitution should be read but i guess i just didn't realize and it, it happens occasionally where you'll have a liberal justice side with the conservatives on something but it happens less often than i thought it would i guess and this is the concept of i think people have talked about as like the idea of like the court being like a political force as opposed to just a legal force is that kind of what you're saying that yeah. it seems like they kind of stick to their lines more often yeah i get but they they but they would never admit that you know and no and most scholars or i don't know about most but a lot of scholars might disagree with me i guess just in my limited experience of reading cases it's been like wow this this is what you know the perfect example would be well, it's not a perfect example. A non-perfect example would be healthcare, where you had all the liberals take one side and all the conservatives take one side. And when I say conservatives, I mean the justices who were appointed by a Republican and the liberals, I mean the ones appointed by a Democrat. And then mm -hmm. you just happen to have one, John Roberts, who's a conservative, who voted with the Democrats, which are the, the liberals, which is very, very rare. He almost never does. Um, and he did. And so then he had upheld uh, Obamacare. So that was that's part of what made that such a big deal, not just that it upheld Obamacare, but it was really unpredictable that a conservative leading justice would take that stance. And and I guess something this because this kind of talks to kind of 
I like this point. I guess this is just kind of like getting my head thinking is if they're only really arguing the components of the appeal, like the broad implications of what they do or the implications of, you know, going one way or another might be very broad and far reaching and affect something like Obamacare. But at the point in time, like what made or broke that case, if I remember correctly, it was something around like a concept of something being a form of taxation. Right. Right. Yeah, correct. So yes. the argument is abstracted from the reality or the result that it might impose. So it's, and it's kind of like, well, if it's just about like a taxation thing, Mm -hmm. why would a certain, not necessarily party affiliation, but the party by which the justice be appointed actually affect how that certain thing is read unless the broad implication and the, you know, the law implications or the law question are kind of being thought of at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a huge part of how they come to their decisions is just like, whoa, we're just looking at this small, this, this small area, which is like, is this a taxation issue or not or whatever? And it had a huge broad implication, but they wouldn't argue that the, they were deciding that big issue. They were just deciding this tax issue. Right. They weren't deciding like there wasn't talk of like deciding Obamacare in that time. It was deciding, you know, the nuance of, right. you know, whether that, that penalty, that- if you don't do Obamacare is considered a tax or not? Yeah. And that's a, that's like a really, that case is a lot, a lot of variables and moving parts. And it's a lot more complicated than what we've just made it out to be, which is like, oh, you're allowed to tax like that. Right. That's really underselling that case. So for anybody who's familiar with that case or plans to read it and just listen to your and I's, you know, dumbed down analysis of it, please <laughs> don't, don't, uh, don't judge us or hate us, but <laughs> you can judge and hate me. I'll allow that. You, okay. You can judge and hate, but like, don't judge me though, because I should know, you know, I should be able to speak more intelligently about that case, but I no, but, and, and I think maybe it's even like, there's a different level of abstraction. Cause a lot of times, like it, when these cases have come up, I at least think in like the last four to five years with things like, uh, rulings that have affected uh, gay marriage and as well as Obamacare, there are like the public opinion of these cases is very much so focused around the broad issue. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's really, that's really hard to watch because um, they just don't understand what's going on in the courtroom at all. Like they don't understand the, you know, what's really being argued in front of the Supreme court. Um, You know, it's hard because uh, in my hometown, uh, I read my hometown paper every day. I go online and read it online. Yep. And there's a, a sheriff who... And you're from a smaller hometown. Your yes. hometown, Indiana, is a small town. Small town, yeah. There's a there's a sheriff in my county who is just very, very, very anti-Obama um, and anti... Uh, or I guess pro-gun, pro-gun, anti-any kind of ban on guns or any kind of you know background checks or anything. And he writes into the paper all the time, and so I see. And it's just kind of, it's disheartening because, well, A, because he's a public figure who people voted for, and he's to, like, be a sheriff, and he's taking, like, constitutional law stances um, and using his authority to try and convince people that he knows what he's talking about. Uh, right, so a- really any sort of political stance in that seems right. a yeah. little suspect. Like, that's not, he's, he's using his leverage and his authority and clout to make positions. Right, so that's, yeah, so the first point I was making, which you correctly identified, is that it's not, I'm not making a legal argument here, I'm just saying that's wrong of him to do in general. Uh, and then the second point I'm making, which is more of a legal argument, I'm saying he really, he didn't go to law school as far as, I mean, as far as I know, I'm sure he didn't, but he's speaking about things he doesn't really understand 
he's just saying, oh, well, the, the, gun, the Constitution says the right to bear arms, and that means that you're allowed to have a gun and no background checks or anything. It's like, no, you're... Like, you don't understand what's being argued here. You know, like, that's not the conservative argument, really. That's just yours. That's not, right. it's, it's naive. Right. And and I think even if so, yeah, you brought up a couple of points, like, ethically, morally, like, questionable. Of course, he should have, you know, you know, he can say whatever he wants, but it should be taken with a grain of salt. And in the position where you have influence like that, yeah. that's, that's potentially dangerous, you know, for any position. I mean, if, if it's something you agree with or something you're, you disagree with you know, using your clout in that mm-hmm. sort of way to make these claims, um, like pseudo academic claims exactly. uh, is, is dangerous. Um, but also I, and I think it kind of gets to one of like the, the general divides between people who just like exist in the world, I guess as us lay people and like the idea of like the law is a very academic and nuanced discipline in order to kind of wrap your head around it and actually understand what's being argued or what's the core of the argument um, takes a little bit more than just like a sort of blind reading of a very basic like claim. Because basically what he's saying is that he understands the constitution better than Obama. And let's remember that Obama was a constitutional law professor. So, I mean, you can argue, you can disagree with his, the way he, what his stances are. And you can say, well, that's not how I think the constitution is read, but you should do it on an academic level. And, you know, rather than just like, well, you know, Obama's wrong because it says right to bear arms. No, he, he has a solid grounded argument in other precedent or other cases (laughs) <laughs> he's not just making something up off the top of his head here. Right. And and I and I do think it's fair to, you know, challenge anyone, but you have to challenge them at the same level that their claims were made, right? Yeah, yeah. Like so to challenge it on an like and that's kind of I guess the whole point of the legal system is the ability to challenge these things back and forth, but you have to do it at the same level. Yeah. Like like that guy couldn't go into a court of law and make that claim and that would uh, yeah, I mean like, the Supreme Court would laugh them, laugh them out of the building. So I yep. guess uh for the listener, I'm not trying to say that Obama's stances are correct or right on the Constitution or anything like that. I'm just saying that um there's more to the argument than what the, the layman maybe sees. Right. And I think that's actually kind of one of the I, I guess this is kind of very interesting because I think that's so prevalent in terms of how most people think of the law and how essentially there's been this huge, I think, and I was kind of alluding to this earlier, like collapse between judicial matters and like political legislative matters. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like over the last, you know, five years, so many decisions that have affected law broadly have been like law creation through a ruling in the Supreme Court setting a precedent as opposed to like broader legislation being passed in Congress. Because mm-hmm. isn't that how the, the process would normally work? Like the laws are established by Congress, and at which point if there's any question or interpretation, that's when the judicial system sets in, steps in, right? Uh, yeah, but there has to be a, a case or controversy, which means that like there has to be an actual case, someone files that starts at the trial court and goes to right. the appeal court. Like you never, you there's never, a process. Yeah, a you process. never have the legislature or the legislature uh, make a rule, and the Supreme Court just says, "Hey, that's that's wrong." Right, or, it has hey, to be. It, there uh, has to be an actual case that gets all the way up to them, and then they get to decide that. Right, but in my mind, I guess it kind of seems weird. And then people, the proper—I don't know if this is the proper route, or maybe this is you know a non-nuanced view of it. But I assume that the way, like the the best way, like equal rights for gay people, you know, whoever for marriage should be something established by like the legislator and enacted into law. However, 
it was something that was essentially became law through precedent set by the Supreme Court. And so I think because of that, you know, people then start to assume that there's a lot more politics and bearing on the Supreme Court level because so much of this precedent then sets law. So then you have people like the guy, the sheriff in the town saying, you know, I want to discuss this Supreme Constitutional you know, matter because that's what's actually going to affect day-to-day law as opposed to a law being created in Congress. Does that, does that make sense? Am I, am I speaking out of my ass or is there some substance there? <laughs> you know, honestly, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think your question, it was really long and I, I'm not sure exactly what you're, I, you just said, do you agree? And I, I don't know if I agree. I'm not sure. Okay. There's a little, there's a, go ahead. So I think that overall, So, you, are you saying that because the the Supreme Court, through the proper channels, is making uh, decisions that affect uh, political issues significantly. That um, this that is why should be determined by laws written. Like, isn't the isn't the proper system for laws to be written in Congress, and that's how we get our laws, as opposed to well, things having to go through? Like, is this a fail? Maybe I'm asking, is this like a failure on a congressional level to actually write the laws that? No. Like, no. no. Well. Like, why, why didn't Congress write a law that said everyone should be created equally and we should allow gay people to get married and it should affect people on the federal level? Because there are certain things um, that, well, let's stop for a second. They have, they had passed a law a few years back saying that the federal government would only recognize straight marriages, uh, which that law was later thrown out a few years ago by the Supreme Court. So they can legislate, but the federal government can't tell a state how they should have to view a gay couple in terms of the federal legislature. Excuse me. The federal legislature cannot decide that. But I guess what I, the bigger point is that there are certain things that you don't want there to be a law about. You want there to be a constitutional provision or about or you want the Constitution to promise. So I guess I wouldn't say this is a shortcoming of the legislature necessarily. It's more of a shortcoming of the Constitution. Like you wouldn't want a law that just said we guarantee you know equal rights because that law can be over can be overturned by a majority vote next next uh, session of Congress, right? You don't want that. You want something that's that important or that much of a human right, if you will. Some people might say that about equal rights. Um, you want that in the Constitution so that it doesn't have to be affected by the whims of the political uh, majority uh, at, you know, at, at any given time. Does that make sense? Right. And so I guess that would then be more of like a like it's a it's a matter so important and so broad and so um, basic in some sense. F- fundamental, fundamental to yeah. bits of, you know, being an American or part of the United States that it, you wouldn't want it to come through the legislator, it's so fundamental that it should be decided and set as like a universal precedent on the Supreme Court level? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, what? So then what about something like, because like, I feel like, I don't even remember when Roe v. Wade was, but like the 80s, something like that? I think that. it was like, the late 70s, but I'm not late sure. Late 70s? Okay. Like, so why is abortion still a topic that... So prevalent if it's something that has been decided at the Supreme Court level, because or I guess like like what is the the legal sort of so if it was something that was just set as a law in the legislature, you're saying it probably would have gone back and forth mm-hmm. a bunch of times depending on who had control mm-hmm. of Congress, right? Right. So this is an example of something that has persisted through time, regardless of that, because it was set as like a constitutional 
claim? Is that how that works? So are you are you trying to say that since the Supreme Court has decided this, why is it still why are people still arguing about it? Well, so one of the I, I guess it's kind of twofold. So like because it was something that was decided by the Supreme Court, that has probably and this is speculative, but that has probably pre- prevented it from going back and forth from it being illegal to not illegal if it was just you know a law that could be overturned by whoever. Okay. Yes. Correct. Controlling yes. group. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I guess then what are the implications if it's something that's been decided on the Supreme Court level, what are the implications then of trying to then overturn or re-rule on something that's been decided at the Supreme Court level? Okay, well... Because essentially to undo that, like people are still very political and vocal about being either pro-choice or pro-life. It's still very something that's part of like the fabric of conversation. Um but in order for that to be overturned by the people who are pro-life, that would then essentially be the undoing of something at the Supreme Court level, which, as we just established, is something much higher and harder to do and broad. Well, I guess there's a long answer and the short answer, and I'll give you the short answer. The, the long answer would have to do with the fact that like Roe v. Wade isn't really the precedent that we rely on anymore. It's the well-known case that said that abortion could be done, but there was actually a second case after it called Planned Parenthood v. Casey, okay. um, in which they kind of came up with different rules. Abortion's still legal, but they said basically there can't be any significant bur- burden to a woman having an abortion. You, you can create burdens, if you will, like obstacles, if they're necessary to ensure health of the woman, but you can't create arbitrary uh obstacles to the woman having an abortion that is its own case and that's that so for the answer your question about roe v wade specifically we'd have to get into that and i'd say well people are still arguing about you know what is an obstacle and all this but to look at your the short answer to your question would would be like well this is just one of those issues that or I guess the short answer to the question would be that the Supreme Court can change its dis- its mind and when another case comes up. That happens occasionally. Um, that's definitely not unheard of, where the Supreme Court would rule, right. rule away. And they, like you might remember, they first ruled that you know segregation was okay uh, right. between blacks and whites. And you know, sometime later, I don't remember if it was 20, 30, or 40 years, but the second case came up and they said, we were wrong the first time. <laughs> Segregation right. is not okay. And so they so that could happen with abortion. Definitely could. Okay. Yeah. It's it's just it's very interesting. The the law is such a nuanced and sticky yeah, and I, I mistress. Like, I like the idea of the Supreme Court being able to change its mind because I think that different we as time goes on, I think we all start to we view things differently. We all evolve. And uh Thomas Jefferson stood for this idea saying that uh it's okay to change you know, for Supreme Court to change precedent every however many years, because he's, he basically said each generation should get to decide what these provisions mean. Um, right. There should be a foundation set. But I mean, hopefully, as you know, a society and culture and a country, um, we evolve and become more thoughtful. Absolutely. If and we didn't, if we didn't, and capable. <laughs> if we didn't allow the Supreme Court to change their mind, a, an African American person would still be worth three fifths of a person. <laughs> Yeah, which is which just is ridiculous. Absurd. Yeah. Yeah. Does okay, so there's something else often hear about from people who talk about constitutional law. It's the concept of founders intent. Yeah. Which um I think we're kind of maybe getting at here, but I believe that's that's the concept that like the constitution should be read from the mindset 
of those in the time when it was written. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of fair? Which would you say that that kind of then violates this principle of, you know, yeah. an evolving Yeah. I mean, they would, they would still say it's okay to change your mind, but the Supreme Court changing its mind would only be because they somehow could, uh, you know, understand what the, the founders wanted more. Like maybe they found a new document from them or something. And so, oh, we, we have a better insight into what they actually meant. So it's okay for us to change our mind. But they wouldn't say, they wouldn't say it's okay for us to change our mind because the populace has evolved. Right. It would be based off of like, oh, this reference to something in like the Federalist Papers, yeah. like ties to, you know, this clause. And we're, so it's, it's very much so sitting in that period of time. How do you, how do you feel about that? About the fundamentalist reading of the Constitution? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't agree with it, but there's a lot of scholars who do, and there's a lot of Supreme Court justices who do or did, like, like Scalia. You know, I read a few opinions from him that he would basically, he loved to go to the dictionary that was printed in 1770-whatever, 1780-something, and look at it and say, what did this word mean according to the dictionary back then? <laughs> and that's how he would decide his case often. Right. Which is... I, which, I mean... Go ahead. From an academic point of view, that's not like a bad thing to do, but no. that's kind of just like a piece of it. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. That's a piece of it. He's ma- he's ma- making a big decision based on this one little piece when really people like me might argue that there's more going on to it and they're going on with it, you know? Um, so how I feel about it is like, I don't really agree with it, but I still respect it because it's a, it's a very big branch of constitutional law. A lot of people right. follow. Yeah. And I think that's something that's kind of, I mean, so in my academic pursuits in school, you know, I would often read, you know, first source texts from like way back when, um, and some of my, you know, great books courses. And part of it would be doing that understanding of, you know, okay, we're reading Plato and we're reading a translation of Plato. So it's abstracted from the original language and it was translated by someone, you know, who then translated it again and has been translated three times. But if we look at the original Greek, like what does this word mean? And you can gain a certain amount of insight in terms of what, you know, philosophical position Plato might have been trying to make at that point in time. However, that's only like one piece of sort of the entire picture mm-hmm. to look at. Sure. Because just as it might be kind of an inter- or a weird claim to some to assume that like the Republic by Plato is in part like a living text, but it has been translated and rediscovered and lost over time. And so as it you know, it is translated and it kind of gets imbued with translation and other things and is brought to even just the, you know, the world you're reading it in, the context you're reading it in, it becomes a very different text. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of important to say, yeah, sure, that's one way to look at it. And that's one part of the argument. And it's definitely not invalid. And it's but it's also not like over valid. It doesn't it doesn't claim validity and truth in all ways. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> Right on. <laughs> right on, brother. Man, we got we got deep there in constitutional oh. stuff. That is beyond where I thought we'd get today. But wow. have, where did you think we would go? I what thought you, we were going to you... stick more with the like things you should know if if you know about the the general legal system. <laughs> All right. Well, well, let's let's go back to that because okay. maybe you know we probably have a lot, we we're probably feel, down to like I guess I feel like one I'm, listener. I'm, I'm more qualified to speak about that than I am about the deep constitutional issues. Yeah, but man, I love having deep conversations with you. Okay, I mean, yeah, but I guess maybe just to disclaim, though, that like at some point in those constitutional issues, I just become at the same level as the layman. I'm not speaking with any knowledge that you don't have. You know, we're just disagreeing with, or we're either agreeing or disagreeing on some 
how the constitution should be read in some way. Yeah. Which is, which is, well, I, I think we did a little bit better job of that. We, we kind of spoke to the philosophical and nuanced elements to it. So if anything, yeah, dear listeners, do not assume that we are experts on this. In anything. Um, in anything, again. This yes, is the, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know the, the point of your podcast or anything, but I think that this would be a good, good summary of it is that we're, we're, we're just, you know, we're, we're on the same intellectual level as the, as the listeners here. And <laughs> that's kind of what we're, you know, we're just talking about it in the same way that, that maybe they would talk about it. Yeah. Hopefully. I'm sure. And I, I mean, yeah, we, we, it sounds like from the other podcasts I've listened to, they've, everybody has like an area that they're interested in and maybe a slight specialty in mine would be law, you know, basic of law, but, but, you know, we're not like claiming to be more well intelligent or anything than these than the listeners well I, i'm definitely not you you might be better you're actually in law school that takes some work to get to but i for sure uh am, am not making well that's why i brought claims. this up i just wanted you to build me up with compliments okay. so thank you that's really all i wanted <laughs> i just want to say you're on here because you're just so so bright and you know you're not the layman you you call people the layman <laughs> <laughs> i mean my smile's very bright so we've we've kind of gone off the deep end, which is cool. I like it. But are there any sort of like basic sort of fundamentals uh, of like what you've learned or seen that you want to you want to share? Like quick tip number one, like don't stab people in Mississippi because there it's going to be real bad. I, I don't um, know. The first thing is just like, don't be afraid to like hire a lawyer. <laughs> A lot, a lot of the cases that we read and the mistakes, not not majority of them by far, anything like that, but a lot of a lot of them are, you know, because people made mistakes with either hiring a, a lawyer who didn't know what he was doing, or they tried to do it themselves, or they made a mistake. Right. You know, it's it's there's a lot that goes into just as one example, like contract law, and when you have people who aren't lawyers trying to write a contract, um, that that can be really, really, really ugly. <laughs> Could be a lot of mistakes made, and it's confusing. Then when it gets to court, as someone who is not a lawyer and has written a contract, <laughs> yeah, it's it's thorny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, just here's a piece of advice for you: when you are writing a contract, don't forget that the ambiguities are construed against the drafter. So if you're the one writing it and it's not clear in the contract, something's not clear. Then when it gets to court, you're probably going to lose. And then there's, of course, uh, so one thing about contract law: this isn't really like graded. Like, this isn't like advice for anybody on a day-to-day basis, but one thing that I found interesting is it, it's like almost like everything that could go wrong in a contract basically has been thought of at some point, and it's been litigated at some point. And the co- courts have come up with doctrines to deal with just about everything, which is funny because you think, so let's say you and I make a contract and it's it's perfectly fine, and then at the very last line it says, uh, you know, once Cole signs this contract he is he is forced to give blake uh five hundred thousand dollars just because blake's a nice guy mm-hmm. but say the contract's about something else it's about like you and i you know renting an apartment or unrelated sure yeah so that that then the courts would probably say that 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 was it's called unconscionable unconscionability like this even though cole read the contract cole signed the contract the idea that he would just have to give Blake $500,000 just because, or just because of some dumb reason, like Blake gave Cole, gave Cole a ride. Uh, right. That's unconscionable. Like that's, that's just not, but that's just, yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. It's unconscionable. Especially so if it was something that, that was very unrelated and there was like no substance yeah. related to it. Cause even to be like, you're contracting me to paint a fence. It'd be like, that's an absurd amount. Right. Well, they're painting a fence for any contract. There has to be something called consideration. Which means right. like you can't it can't be a contract that just says Blake's gonna give Cole five hundred thousand dollars. Boom. 
And that's a gift. That's not a contract. Um, so once there's consideration, but yeah, if it's something really unequal, like Blake paints a fence and Cole pays him half a million dollars, you know, a small fence. And given that it, assume it takes like five minutes. Um, right. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's unconscionable. And the courts would probably throw that out. And there are certain like tests for consideration, right? I'm not, maybe not prepared to go into real detail about it, but, but go on with but, your, go on with your thought. No, I, I it just, I, I can't remember. I mean, I've taken business law classes, which, you know, focus a lot around contracts too, but it's just the idea that in order to have consideration, there are certain tests and qualities that have to be met to essentially give it that mm-hmm. value. And there's, there's other elements too, aside from consideration that are escaping my mind that also need to be incorporated yeah. or, or met in order for it to be. There has to be a, like substantial. A, a meeting of the minds, if you've heard of that. Yeah. That's a, that's a phrase they use. So we have to, at some point, our minds have to be in agreement with what we're signing, which sounds really basic and dumb, but I, the courts bring it up all the time. Which is actually kind of like a good thing, because it's yeah. kind of like, a oh, the meeting of the minds. Like, what the hell does that mean? But, like, fundamentally, as a concept, you'd be like, yeah, if you're signing a contract, there should be some sort of mental yeah. agreement around what's being signed or why it's being signed or the in, the intention. Yeah, and I think that like for the listener like it's easy to be like, well this is weird or what are they talking about in terms of Cole and Blake talking about a simple rental contract, but you have to remember that like maybe you learned in business law that companies have huge huge contracts with each other that deal with a lot of moving pieces and so it is possible that something gets slipped in there that both sides didn't catch or they didn't agree on, you know. Right. Right, and is is completely out of you know out of whack, perhaps yeah, unconscionable. Exactly. Okay, so so what else you got for me? Other other sort of good tips and tricks. I think I think something that is important is, and maybe this you can agree or disagree with this, is not to really be intimidated by like the law or like legal things like conceptually. Um, I know okay. w- when I was working on. Uh, the airspace every once in a while we'd get like a phony sort of like uh, DMCA takedown notice which is essentially like saying like you are using this thing without permission Mm -hmm. and we get these like long legal letters and you know just being like someone who's like running a company by yourself and you're getting this like scary legal letter like on letterhead and like signed over whatever like that can be like very intimidating Mm -hmm. and without either the ability to read through yourself or like have someone who can look at it to just see if like these claims are like real or valid or not or even like who this person is or where it's coming from it can be really intimidating and you can get coaxed into doing things you don't really want to do because of that Mm -hmm. or if you're you know even if it's like you're like signing your lease or something like that and you don't read the you know the lease contract that can be a huge mistake because there could be things in there that are slipped in that you know might bite you in the ass later mm-hmm. if like something goes wrong with your apartment or there's you know something happens or you add something like because isn't there this concept that if you like improve an apartment somehow that you're like leasing like the rights of ownership belong to the person who owns it so like if you don't know that or have like a basic fund like if you're just too intimidated by the idea of like a contract to actually read through it or investigate that can put you in a really bad position later so yeah that's a that's hard because for one, like Blake, you're more intelligent than, you know, most. Now you're just building me up. Yeah, but I'm being serious because just because you're not intimidated, there are people who should call a lawyer. Like if you're not. Right, right, right. If you're and not I guess... clear on something, is uh, I would never advise someone to try and just be like, well, I think this is what it means. I would definitely call a lawyer. And I guess maybe that's part of it too. If you're at the position where you are intimidated, don't just be like bullied by the intimidation. Right, right. Either yeah. know your own abilities 
uh, or, you know, actually reach out to a lawyer, find someone who understands it better and ask for that help mm-hmm. instead of just being like, oh, this person is asking for something. I have to do it because it's on like legal letterhead and I'm intimidated by it. Yeah, I agree. OK, so that's my bit of advice then <laughs> as a non-lawyer. <laughs> as you're, uh, you know, probably losing lawsuits that you're not even aware of because you've oh, been, you've been trying to do your own uh, legal work. For years now. I represent myself and myself only. <laughs> it has not gone well. It's, I am personally indebted based on all the payouts I have to make on this. But uh, yeah, so that's my advice. Just do it yourself. No, don't be intimidated. <laughs> know DIY. your limits and be willing to ask for help. Blake's DIY shop. <laughs> do it yourself. I'm actually a, a practicing, uh, I guess, a kind of legal assistant who will give you legal <laughs> advice for free. I, every time it's just do it yourself. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I need help with this contract. Oh, I would just read it myself if I were you. Make a decision from there. What would I do in your shoes if I was you? I would read it myself and just go with your guts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what else? What else you got? Uh, lay, lay it on us. You you gotta have that that juicy insider scoop. Well, I don't really want to get into con con law constitutional law again. No, we've done that. The one thing I would point out, just because I think what you're asking me, you know, is what's things that the layman doesn't know that maybe should know is that uh like freedom of speech and all these you know bill of rights that are so famous when someone says oh i can say this it's a free country that doesn't really make any sense because the those are all rights guaranteeing that the government the federal government or or any government the government won't limit your speech the government won't try and shut you up about something that you're allowed to speak about but there's first of all there's caveats to that like Freedom of speech is limited in terms of like pornography and stuff, as all the Supreme Court has the Supreme Court has found. And then second of all, the or like point- libel and slander, right? Those are Yeah, I mean those are those are You can't just say whatever you want about other people without founding. That that can also right, it's because not like it's not your right to say anything to anyone. Right. But so the point I'm making is like that's the government can't limit you from saying anything, but other things can, like private companies. And if you work for a company, they can, you know, tell you not to give out trade secrets and you can sign a document about that maybe. Or uh, like libel and slander is that's not the government limiting you from saying anything. That's the other that's a civil case where the other person is bringing a suit against you. But the same general advice or the concept that if you're reviewing the Bill of Rights, those yeah. are protections right. between individuals and the government, exactly. not yes. individuals and other individuals or individuals and companies, institutions, yeah. whatever. Exactly. Be. So, I, yeah, that's that's totally true. And that's that's so it's such funny when people, they just completely uh, misunderstand what that means <laughs> when they say, like, oh, it's a free country. I can say what I want or whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like for all, I feel like that's, you know, from my knowledge of film and television, it's pretty common for people to be like it's a free country like that's something that's yeah. just like thrown out <laughs> yeah. so commonly exactly. in like pop culture and like everything we're just like ah, that's not exactly how it, how it works <laughs> yes oh one thing we didn't talk about is necessarily how something gets into a federal trial court uh my understanding is usually like something that involved cross state lines or a crime yeah. over a certain dollar amount yeah that- so in order to get uh in federal court you have to have uh, one of two things, either A, it has to be a federal question, which would mean that if you were bringing a suit, like we said earlier, where you're saying you didn't have your due process rights, uh, the state deprived you of those. The example we did earlier was where you'd sue in, in state court, and that's totally permissible. You can do that. 
they're allowed to rule on federal government issues, but they could be overruled by the Supreme Court. But if it was a federal question like that, where what's in question is a federal constitutional issue or a, or a federal law, then you could sue in federal court and they would take the case. Um, and then the second way to get into federal court, which is the much more common way, is that you'd have to have uh, diversity of citizenship, which would mean that Blake from Illinois is suing Cole from Indiana. So that's that's diversity because we're from different states. So we mm-hmm. could we could get to federal court, and then with that also it has to be more for more than seventy five thousand dollars. Okay, yeah. So there, I knew there was some dollar amount. Yeah, and it has to be more than seventy five, not seventy five equally. And also, it has to be complete diversity, which means that if you were to sue me. And my brother, and he's a resident of Illinois, then we can't go to federal court because you're, there's Illinois on both sides of the V there. You understand? Mm-hmm. Blake, Illinois, V, Cole, and Taylor, Illinois. Okay. What? Oh, here's a question I have. Where? So the foundation for that dollar amount, how is that like determined? Because you've uh, like... It's in the Constitution. Seriously? Um, well, I believe it was a lower amount in the Constitution. Oh, no, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. Not the $75,000 threshold, but like if I'm bringing a suit against you and I'm like, let's say just because this was brought before, it's like a defamation suit. I'm saying like I'm seeking, I'm seeking damages up to the value of $400,000 for saying, you know, I'm a big old jerk on TV. Like how how did I what what is the grounds for establishing that four hundred thousand dollars as being the amount of money that I think I should receive damages? Well, uh, defamation is kind of a bad example because defamation is uh, oftentimes allows uh, presumed damages, which means you since defamation is it's so hard to I did take a class on defamation actually, even though earlier I said I didn't know quite know that much about it. I did take a class on it. So you I just did, didn't do well in it. No, I did well. I, <laughs> so I do know a little bit. I just didn't. I don't. Uh, I would need to. I would need to go back and look to understand how the First Amendment interacts with defamation. But that's okay. not at issue here. So um, with defamation, it's really hard to prove damages because how would I know how much business you would have gotten, you know, if I hadn't said that thing on TV? Like we right. don't. We don't know. And it's hard to prove. And so lots of times, uh, depending on the specifics of the case, it, you're allowed to have presumed damages where we don't, you don't have to prove. We can just assume that you lost however many thousand dollars. Um, but to, to give you a, more specific, a better answer, you said, you know, how do you just come up with these numbers? Well, you'd, have to sh- you'd be trying to show, like, I lost, um, you know, I don't know. I'm Blake, and I make $500,000 a year. And as soon as he said this on TV, my you know, my bookings or whatever you do for a living, I don't know, got uh, completely, you know, went way down. And wiped out, yeah. Wiped out. Nobody wanted to do business with me anymore. And the community values me less, which is hard. To, it's really hard to put a number on like that. Like, right. not just are you getting less business, but you're no longer getting invited to the neighborhood swim party or whatever. Wait, which uh, I would be bitter about. <laughs> yeah, of course you would. And that, and there's probably a do- dollar value to that. And that that I can't give you a really good answer on how they determine you know, that's that's the lawyers coming up with their own test to say this is what I think it would equal. Right. Yeah. I was um I was watching oh, this will be good. Uh in like the the gym in my apartment building, like the little treadmills have TVs on it. Mm-hmm. And if I go run in the middle of the day, there's mm-hmm. always like some sort of like Judge Judyish show <laughs> that's yeah. going on. So that's has also been a good that that's how I prepped for this conversation. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh but there is this really good one uh where 
there was like this guy who was having a block party on the 4th of July and like invited people over. And this other guy who lived on the block showed up with a couple of like game cocks, like fighting roosters okay. or something like that mm -hmm. uh, to the block party, which first of all seems a little inappropriate mm -hmm. uh, because they're like fighting animals. And I, don't, is, I guess that's legal to do uh, wherever they were. Um, but he shows up, they're having a good time. The guy's like, Hey man, can you leave with your fighting roosters? Cause this seems strange. The guy's like, nah, we're just going to have some more burgers, whatever. Later in the evening, it's the 4th of July. So they like set off fireworks. One firework like careens to the side, hits the game cock evidently directly in the bottom, as was said on the <laughs> show. And the firework exploded, and so did the rooster. <laughs> Fried chicken. <laughs> exactly. And so the guy with the rooster was seeking damages because he's like, this is a fighting chicken, which I win fights. Like, I fight, and then I win money off of the fights that he's in. Mm -hmm. And so he was seeking something like, you know, like $200,000 worth of damages because this fighting rooster would have gained him that amount of earnings mm -hmm. if he won every time over the next like year and a half or mm -hmm. something like that it's like how did he actually come up with that two hundred thousand dollar figure or whatever it was like how do you determine the value and i guess that's kind of what you're saying it's yeah, the, and, uh, the potential lost financial the lost money by not having yeah, that exactly he's anymore. trying to say this is where i would be financially if it wasn't for losing this chicken right um but uh, you know, that's part of that is litigated, Blake, like when there's when they're arguing, you know, whether or not he's guilty, they're also you're also going to argue to the jury, hey, his his logic and his uh, math here doesn't add up. It doesn't equal two hundred thousand dollars. And here's why the chicken only wins sixty five percent of his matches. He normally wins an average of a thousand dollars each time. The chicken's already five years old. He only most the average chicken only fights until he's seven. So if you add the thousand dollars for the twelve matches he does a year over the next two years, and we assume that he only wins sixty-five percent of the time, then it's not going to get to two hundred thousand or anywhere close to that. Right? Maybe it's like six thousand yeah, dollars, and that's so, what it what it settles for. So that's kind of an awkward part in a trial. Often is where you have to, as the uh, def as the defendant's attorney, you have to argue to the jury, this is a this if the plaintiff is wrong. We don't owe him any money, and He's done, he's wrong to bring this into court and we win. But if you guys were to find that he won, here's how much we he should win, right? Right. Because so unless you call that out, right? Oh yeah. Are you then on the hook for the yeah. well larger... if, if the jury decides that, which they likely would if that's the only number they've heard floated around. Right. And uh, they're Yeah. So you you know. you have to attack that even though it's awkward because you're trying to say, like, well, he, we are totally not at fault here. But just in case, you know, we want to minimize how much we're gonna have to owe. And so we think it's actually this amount. And that's important because, like I just said, the jury, if the only number they hear all day is $200,000, when they decide the case, they're probably going to say, well, it's probably about $200,000. Right. Because they're not going to do any independent, I mean, you're not allowed to do any independent research, and they're not going to do any independent, probably, like, thinking about how much a chicken's worth, unless you give them the material on the to be able to do that, saying, like, well, you know, here's his chances of winning and how much he wins and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay, let's. Uh, I've I've got some interesting thoughts around juries, or I have some questions. So the concept of like you're supposed to have it's like an unbiased jury of your peers. Mm -hmm. Is that the language? Something like that. Something like that. How how is how is that determined? Like, what are the, I've never. It's called 
Voidier jury selection. Okay. And the way it works is, so I've taken advanced Civ Pro, and so we went into a lot of details about the Civ Pro stands for civil procedure. Sorry. Um, and so I, I know I do know a little bit about this. So basically, remember that there's a federal court and a state court, and these juries are separate. So let's just choose one randomly. We'll say federal court. Sounds good to me. Yeah, they pick a they names out of the county. Usually, the voting record each county or each uh, I mean federal court, so each district would have its own its own rules on that probably or maybe there's a uniform rule that doesn't really matter so they pick your name off somewhere probably the voting records um or you know the voting registration sure yeah and uh then you're like kind of like on call is the kind of how i call is what i would refer to it as where then they pick when they pick jurors for the upcoming trials they're only choosing off this list of which names have already been removed which i guess isn't really an important distinction but Oftentimes, if you get called for jury duty and then you don't get selected, you can get called again because you're still on the on call. So you're on, yeah, like still on the list. You're still okay. on the list, and they have to read. I think they have to refresh the list. I think at least every three years. I think um, there's a, there's a law. Is there a federal rule? But I don't remember what it is. But you have to. It's like there's some amount you can refresh it every week if you want, but there's like a minimum. It has to be at least every three years or something. Okay. So Makes then. Sense. You get summoned to court, say that Blake gets chosen, he makes it onto the on-call list, and he gets chosen. You go to court, and they have like 50 jurors, probably. I, I got to watch this last summer, too, when I worked for a judge. And they have, and so you're all lined up, and they'll start with the general things, like in our case, it was a, a child sex trafficking case, which is you know, really tragic. Um, but they read a list of like 10 names, and one of the names was the child who had been abused mm -hmm. and because if any of the people on the jury had like had her in class if they were like an elementary school teacher or um you know were her neighbor or anything they wanted those people removed so they they you know read 10 names and one of them was the actual person's name and did, did any of these names you know sound familiar and no one raised their hand but it'd be conceivable that one person would and then they'd get removed and they'd get to go home so um, but you could also be removed for like one of the other arbitrary names too Oh yeah, yeah, you totally could have, yeah. And so this, and this is part of. Oh, kind of you know to what? Like, Not necessarily though. That didn't happen in my trial. But what could have happened was you would raise your hand and say one of those names is familiar to me. The judge would call you up and he would say because he's sitting at his which bench. name? Yeah, yeah, which name? And then you'd say, and if it's one of the made up names, you'd say, "Don't worry about it. Go sit down." Okay. Um. Yeah, that that could happen too, actually. And this is part of the process of essentially trying to select that mm -hmm. unbiased group because yes. if you knew that person then you would have bias right. even if they're even judgments. if they're you know um implied biases you know in your head you may not even realize you're biased but just because you know someone isn't you know that's not unbiased even if you're what trying if, to be unbiased what if it's something of like a person who like if it's like in the case of like a small town it's someone who's like a public figure or it's even someone who's like a national figure yeah. how do you escape those sort of well, things cuz i feel like there's certain positions where like this is like a universal name people are going to have inherent biases around Well that's them. very you know, true and you're going to hit a point where you have like Donald Trump where everyone's going to know his name and you just you can't ha you know it, you can't play that game of if you know him then he's out you know okay. um, yeah. you'd have to just you'd have to play the game of like how do you feel about this person and all this and because I, I didn't add, but I was going to say is like you fill out a sheet. There's basically like a worksheet. and You fill out a bunch of information. Sure. Um, sure. And so if, if any of that information, you know, they could say like on a scale of one to 10, you know, what's your favorability of Trump and all this. And then they would just be trying to get 
there'd be multiple questions like that. Maybe just trying to get the most neutral people they could. But if there is a case that is really high profile, like then you can also file for a, a new venue, which means that you would move to like a different county to have court somewhere where the person's not as famous. That's just one option, but because you had asked about that. Uh, but in terms of ter- picking a jury, then you'd, then you'd go back to just uh, looking at their worksheet and um, whatever the crime is, you know, you would probably ask if anyone has been a victim of the crime. You'd probably ask that on the worksheet so you don't have to ask out loud. You know, and then so the judge is looking at all these sheets and he's saying like, oh, OK, this person was a victim of the same crime, like car theft or whatever. So we're probably going to excuse them because they're more likely to, you know, have a bias against the defendant. Gotcha. Anyway, so all this is going on and the, the, both uh, counsels are there. So the, the plaintiff and the defendant's lawyers are there for this. And they get three objections for they're called challenges or something like that they get three for uh any reason that they want and they don't have to disclose the reason once the judge will say okay i'm looking at these 12 jurors what do you guys think each side can say no 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 to three of them for no reason they don't have to give it at all do they get to know what the other who the other side is saying no to yes okay yeah and then also it's like if i pick someone i want to get rid of rid of and you also want to get rid of them you would like use me getting rid of them instead of you know, or is it like you tell them at the same time? Uh, like what if we pick I, I the same know. three people I, to get rid of? Oh, well, then that wouldn't matter. Then, all, then the three are gone. But in terms of, like, does it count against you if you both choose, that, that's probably just up to the judge, honestly. Okay, gotcha. Um, and then what uh, you also get is you get unlimited amount of challenges for some kind of explicit bias. Like, there, there's a list in the rules, and I don't know them off the top of my head, but, like, for instance... This is about a bank robbery, and this person's a bank teller or like works in banking. Like, right. It that, might have some sort of association. Yeah, that's an explicit bias that I'm sure there's something in the rules that says like that. And I just can't think of what the wording of it is. But, and then you would say, uh, and then the judge would say, okay, well, we'll dismiss them because that's an obvious bias. So, and then from there, it just, you kind of narrow it down over time. Is there a certain like timeline that you're limited to where it's like finally you guys have to pick like a jury? Um, it doesn't usually, I mean, in the most cases, it doesn't take that long because the judge just wants to get it rolling. And so, right. You know, he's just going quickly through the list and just choosing. Um, in being high profile cases, I suppose it could take a long time. Uh, and there's no like official time limit though. And then are there certain rules, like if you're part of a case that's maybe like high profile and it's ongoing, like in terms of like what the jury has to do during the duration of that case? Yeah. So once you're a juror, you can't, you're not supposed to watch the news or listen to the news or read the news. (laughs) You're supposed to stay away from that during the case. And if it's really high profile, then they'll like lock you up in a hotel room basically without TV. Uh, That's what they do with the jurors. (laughs) But that's that's excellent. <laughs> yeah, that's not like common. That's only like you know because in most cases there's really going to be no news report about this case because there's trials every day in every right. county. I was I'm just thinking back to again. This is from my TV knowledge of this stuff. Did you see Making a Murderer? Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about like the jury in that where it's something that was very ongoing and like it's such a small town. So to find like someone who first of all didn't know these people or have an opinion of them must have been very difficult in terms of jury selection. And then because it was so ongoing and, you know, important or high profile, even just to that town or to Wisconsin in general, that that'd be something really hard to avoid as a juror to not introduce bias at a later point. Yeah, it would be. And that's kind of why in that documentary, they said at one point, um, 
they had asked like all the prospective jurors at one point who had heard of Stephen Avery, and I think all except one raised their hand or something. Yeah. That's hard. And at that point, you're just kind of having to deal with trying to find the least biased people. Like, you're not going to find residents of that county who haven't heard of them. It's just not going to happen. Right. But you're trying to say, minimize the impact of that knowledge bias. Like, you might know him, however, willing to approach this in a even sort of way. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's one of those things where, you know, you can only go so far, but eventually you, you have to have a jury. Yeah. And also in terms of the lawyers being able to dismiss for any reason three times, they're not allowed to use, there's three or four protected classes. Like you can't uh, dismiss for racial reasons, uh, can't dismiss for religious reasons or something like that. Gotcha. So that, that can be, if, cause you're, you, so you don't have to give the reason, but the opposing counsel can say, hey, you know, you just dismissed three black guys or whatever, you know, I'm, you can raise a challenge with the judge and he'll, he can decide on it or else, or else you can appeal it up and all that. Gotcha. So it's, you don't have to disclose a reason. However, a case yes. or not a case, but a point could be made. A challenge could be right. made against that. Yeah. That's called a using Batson one of those challenge. protect a what's it called? A Batson challenge. It's someone's name from a case that decided that. Well, at this point, is there, is there any other big knowledge you want to lay on us? Is there something you want to plug something else you want to, you want to talk about? Plug? Uh, no, I mean, I, <laughs> I um, hope that this was somewhat interesting. I also hope that no one listens to this and thinks that I'm a know-it-all 2L who is trying to, a second-year law student who's trying to act like a, you know, an elite jerk. I just, I think that it's all pretty new to me too. You know, I just started learning it last year. So right, a lot yeah. of stuff I and don't it's, know. <laughs> and it's very, very new new to me before we go um we've been getting a lot of mail Mm -hmm. coming into the show Mm -hmm. um asking about you know when are you going to have a lawyer on Mm -hmm. and then there's a couple of questions that they had for lawyers do you mind if i redo some of these okay are you are you ready i'm suspicious but continue um so here's one from black phillip called uh the question is oh i guess it's kind of like a question and response sort of thing why do they bury lawyers under 20 feet of dirt is the question, and then he, he wrote an answer. Do you know why? Uh, I assumed that you looked up bad lawyer jokes. <laughs> he, he, he said because deep down they're really good people, and, and I'd like to say that as well. Deep down you're a really good wow. person. Wow, all right. What do, you call, that... what do you call a truckload of lawyers driving off a cliff? I don't know. Tell me. A good start. <laughs> <laughs> tell that one to uh, your mom. What do, you, what do you call a lawyer with an IQ of 60? Uh, a judge? Uh, yeah, your honor. <laughs> so uh, um what's the difference between a tick and a lawyer um uh, i don't know the tick falls off when you're dead i don't know if i really get that one do they like to do they like to to cling on yeah i mean there's the inheritance lawyers who are trying to oh, trying okay. to figure out who gets the money or i was i was gonna say a lawyer charges you for your to be on you or something like that i don't know <laughs> oh that, must that be would something be, that'd, be, that'd be good yeah. um yeah, so that was all the fan mail we got. Wow, I, just wanted... I didn't realize you were getting so much fan mail. That's really good for you. Oh, yeah, I know. It's, it's good. Oh, oh, here's another one okay. we got from uh, Rick Steves. Rick Steves, uh, two first No names. relation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's the difference between a vacuum cleaner and a lawyer on a motorcycle? A lawyer on a motorcycle? <laughs> yes, this one gets a little complicated. <laughs> Can you imagine a vacuum cleaner and a lawyer who is on a motorcycle? I don't know. 
the vacuum cleaner has a dirt bag on the inside. <laughs> I guess the the lawyer could be. Why do you have to be on a motorcycle? I don't know. That's a kind of a good question. <laughs> I've got one more. This is from another listener. Uh, what do lawyers and sperm have in common? Wow. Um, I don't know. One in three million have the chance of becoming a human being. Wow. And who sent that in? Uh, that would be from just Toddy Todd. Toddy Todd. Was that, is that a username or is that his That's name? username. That's no, that's username. username. Okay. That's not, that's not, a, that's not his Christian name. Is, is that his AOL address or how, what username uh, is it? It's, it's Toddy Todd 44420 at yahoo.com. Oh, okay. Yeah. I hear they have a good mail platform. So if you want to mail him, you can send those in. All right. Yeah. And that's all the fan mail we got. Well, oh, wow. uh, thank you for, for answering all their questions. <laughs> yeah. No problem. No problem. I now, I, based on my DIY principle, I've spoken to you, a 2L, <laughs> and I now have enough extra knowledge to be truly um, invincible when it comes to the law. So if anyone has any legal questions they want to send to me, I would just respond, do it yourself, uh, <laughs> as I would. <laughs> and what was your mailing address? I'm sorry. That would be um, Toddy Todd four 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 twenty at Yahoo dot com. <laughs> Amplifier is me, Blake J. Graham, with special guest Cole Walkerman. Our executive producer is Wallace the Labrador, who's always a good boy. Our theme song is by the insanely talented Chris Ward, with guest illustrations by the remarkable Carrie O'Mara. You can find Amplifier on Twitter at Amplifier FM or online at hotair.fm. Amplifier is a product of Hot Air Radio. Thanks for listening.